Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. That's found on page 955 in the Bibles that are provided there for you in your rows. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're certainly thrilled to have you. You have uh, come on quite a Sunday, I must say. Uh, we are working through the book of 1 Corinthians as a church, and today we land... Uh, on a topic that has many parents among us nervous and uh, perhaps maybe adults as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman... But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give, his wife, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let us pray together. Lord, although this topic may be an uncomfortable one for some, I pray that you would help us to see that we are exactly where we need to be. To understand it in light of what is true and how you have designed it. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Not only that we would be a church marked by sexual purity, both among the married and the single alike. But Lord, that we would be a church that is marked by our love for you. And our desire to see your lordship over every area of our lives. Lord, this passage deals with one aspect of our obedience. But I pray, Lord, that the, the principles that, that we see here today, Lord, would, would touch every area of our lives. That we would prioritize your ways above the world's ways. And, and live in a way that, that, that speaks to the lost world of your greatness and your mercy and your kindness. The doors for the gospel would be opened in the lives of those who know us because of our obedience to this text. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, sin at its very nature is a perversion of, of what God has created as good. Let, let me explain what I mean by that because... Typically, when we think of sin, we just think of it as doing something we ought not do. And, and while that is a, 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 an accurate statement, sometimes I don't think we think deeply enough as to, as to how sin perverts. To take the topic before us this morning from, from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's the topic of, of, of sexual purity and the purpose of sex in the context of marriage. It's a good and beautiful thing that God has created. But what does sin do? Sin takes something that God has created as good and, and perverts it when used outside of God's context that he's given. The same thing can be said for the truth. The truth is a good thing. It's a, it's a helpful thing. It's a, it's a guiding thing. But when that truth is perverted, it becomes a what? A lie. Brothers and sisters, before us, we have an issue set forth in God's word that we need to take back from the world in terms of our understanding of its importance and, and the role that it should play in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses a topic that, that, that we must approach carefully. We must approach it with reverence. 
Especially in this day when, when, when sex is so devalued in the society that we live in. And, and yes, even devalued in the context of some churches as well. Now in society, it's easy, right? We, we see it everywhere from television shows to, to movies to even commercial. That, that phrase that we've heard used before, sex sells has proven to be true in the world in that you find innuendo in commercials for, 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 for everything from toothpaste to tacos. The, the result is a society and even a church that no longer looks to God for guidance on matters of sexuality, but to the prevailing winds of our culture. Think about that. Per, perhaps... Over the past couple of weeks, you, you heard about the story that was featured on ABC's Good Morning America. It's the story about the 11-year-old boy who, who dressed as a drag queen and danced at an adult club in New York City as, as patrons at this homosexual establishment threw money at this 11-year-old. Now, that story is newsworthy, because the situation is sick and shameful. But, but the problem is, that's not how it was presented. This was a celebration of, the, of this 11-year-old's identity. A positive news story about that. Imagine... If it was an 11-year-old girl doing this in the context of a heterosexual adult club. Our country and our culture has lost its mind. So it falls on us as the church to not only promote God's ways, but to live them as well. That, that example, while shocking, is, is only one of, of thousands of how sex and sexuality have been perverted in society. But sadly, too often, the, the church either stays silent on such matters or, even worse, trivializes them to the point that the culture has little interest in what God has to say about sex and marriage. Now, back in 2012, a, a Southern Baptist mega church pastor in Texas, along with his wife, spent 24 hours in a bed they had positioned on top of their church building, live streaming, streaming on the internet a discussion about sex. It was a gimmick. This followed what had been a week of encouragement from this pastor to his church to, 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 to commit to what he called a sex experiment where married couples in the church were encouraged to be sexually active every day for a week and then later for a month. This was supposed to, to, to educate the church on God's ways about sex. Why would the world have any interest in what God says about sex and sexuality when what they see from the church are gimmicks and stunts designed to gain attention rather than teaching truth from God's Word. We're not trying to, to sell books. We're not trying to build up our internet following. What we are called to do as the body of Christ is to set apart God, God's ways in contrast to the world's ways on every issue and to do so in such a way that reveals the, the greatness and the wisdom and the majesty of God and, and the foolishness and, and, the, and the death that results from the world's ways. 
So no church today, you will not hear any gimmicks. You will not receive any challenges or even any off-color jokes about the matter that has been set before us. But with God's help, you will hear the issue addressed with reverence and honor as it deserves Honestly, brothers and sisters, in in reflecting on this passage this week, I have become convicted by how easy it is to go for cheap laughs when it comes to talking about sexuality. And when we do this, we profane what God has created for our good. As the people of God, brothers and sisters, we must do better. But before we dive into this passage, I want to point out a shift that is taking place in the greater context of of 1 Corinthians, because this really runs the rest of the book, okay? Uh, We we, we see in chapter 7 that this, and we've seen this before in our study of, of the letter of 1 Corinthians, that this is not Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. But we also see in chapter 1 that the church in Corinth at some point had written to Paul in the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. The second half of it, what we have is is Paul actually addressing issues or questions that the Corinthians raised in their letter to him. But perhaps you've read 1 Corinthians before and in the first half of the book, makes sense. You, you can follow this logical flow, and then all of a sudden here in the second half, it seems like Paul is jumping around to different issues. That, that's not what he's doing at all. Actually, what he is doing is responding point by point to issues that were raised in, in the letter that was written to him from the church in Corinth. Now, as we continue through the rest of the letter, we're going to come across the phrase, now concerning. We see it first in verse 1 as Paul addresses the issues of marriage and singleness within the church. Then later in chapter 7 in verse 25, we see it again as he addresses whether or not older single women and widows should be married. In chapter 8, verse 1, we see it again as Paul addresses whether or not it is acceptable for Christians to eat food that is sacrificed to idols. Later, in chapter 12, verse 1, we see it in addressing the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church. And then finally, in chapter 16, verse 1, we see it in reference to the church's need to collect money to support other churches. And then the last time in in, in chapter 16, verse 12, we see it as Paul addresses how the Corinthians should understand and view the ministry of Apollos. All of these sections begin with that phrase, now concerning. And that is is an indicator that Paul has given that, that he is moving on to the next issue that they raised in their letter. Does that make sense? It's important that we get that because as we move ahead... If we don't have that framework in mind, then we're missing an important piece of the puzzle. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, is not designed to be Paul's comprehensive teaching on sexuality in the church. He's, he's addressing an issue that was raised, but from it we gain principles that help us be more faithful in understanding sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. Okay, I think understanding this about 1 Corinthians really will help us moving forward and have a greater appreciation for what Paul is tackling here in his letter. But back to the subject at hand. As Paul begins this section on marriage and singleness, he does so by addressing the importance of sexual intimacy within the marriage. This intimacy is a gift from God for our good, brothers and sisters, and we must view it as such. As we consider these verses, I want to do so under three main points that that center on this theme of God's gift of intimacy within marriage. First of all, we're going to see that in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, there were two faulty views which dominated their understanding of sexual intimacy. Second, we're going to see that God's gift of intimacy within marriage serves to protect both the husband and the wife. 
And finally, we're going to see that God's gift of intimacy serves to further unite the husband and wife in their relationship with one another. And brothers and sisters, my prayer for us this morning is simple. And that is that, our, that, that we will glorify the God who created sexual intimacy and in how we view it, how we talk about it, how we abstain from it until we are married, and how we enjoy it once we are married. And may God do this among us for our good and for his glory. First, let's consider two faulty views of God's gift which existed in Corinth. Verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. Now, up to this point in 1 Corinthians, we've learned a lot about the influence of the culture of Corinth on the Christians in Corinth. Sexual immorality was, was practiced openly in Corinth, even celebrated within the culture. And we saw way back in chapter 5 that immorality had infiltrated the church in the form of a man who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now we learn that that behavior was so shameful that even those outside the church viewed it as unacceptable, immoral. Two weeks ago, Wes did an exceptional job preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Now in this section, Paul further dismantles the, the culture's view and approach to sexuality. Let, let me read those verses to you again because they really do represent one of the two faulty views that the church had towards sexual intimacy. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, what Paul is describing here is, is being guided or, or, or is the danger of being guided or controlled by one's sexual desire. Now remember in Corinth, to, to engage with a prostitute was a part of their pagan worship. It was, it was, it was everyday life for them. And, and, and the attitude was, was that, well, if, since I'm saved in spirit, I can, I can do what I want with my body, basically. And so the church, some in the church, were, were, were in danger of adopting this culture's view that, that it's okay to engage in the same behaviors that they were engaged in before they came to faith in Christ. This is a faulty logic, but, but it's one that was prevalent in society and one that was influencing some within the church. In these verses, Paul dismantles this foolish reasoning by making it clear that our bodies, as do our spirits, exist for the glory of God. And sexual immorality in no way honors God. In fact, it is the source of great dishonor. Because when we give ourselves over to sexual sin, we are grieving not just God the Father, but we are grieving the Spirit of God who lives within us. And in fact, in a sense, when we engage in sexual morality, in a sense, we are actually denying the faith. So this is a serious matter. The, the, the church in Corinth was in a culture where sex was, was a part of pagan worship. 
Sex brings pleasure. So, so, so why not continue in that same way of living even though they were worshiping a different God? But Paul makes it clear to both the Corinthians and to us that the culture's way of doing things is not God's way. So, so the first faulty view that was prevalent in, Cor- in the church in Corinth was that some were still wor- worldly in their participation in sexual immorality. In chapter 7, we see that there were others in the church who had gone to another extreme. Depending on what translation you're using, you may or may not have quotations marks around the following sentence in verse 1. In the ESV, it says it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Another translation might say it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The reason for the difference there is that phrase, touch, in the Greek, it was always used in a way that indicated touched as in, in a sexual manner. So in the ESV, they're just translating it for us in a way that we will appreciate what the Greek intended. Does that make sense? But, but the presence of these quotation marks really are an editorial decision on, on the part of some biblical Bible translators. And, and the reason they're there is to indicate that Paul is quoting from the letter he had received from the Corinthians. Now, while we don't know for certain that this is the case, I think the evidence is pretty strong that that is indeed what what Paul is doing here because as we read the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it becomes pretty clear that Paul is not anti-husbands touching their wives. In fact, he's, he's quite for it. He advocates for it. Now, some have said that, that Paul is referencing single people not touching a woman, and, and, and of course, that is true. But either case, we, we, we see that Paul's teaching and the Bible's teaching on sexual intimacy with mar- within marriage is consistent. Paul later commands married Christians to be faithful and consistent in their intimacy with one another. So, so the problem is, is that some in the church in Corinth were, were taking the worldly approach. Well, since our sins are forgiven, it doesn't matter if we engage in the things that we did before we were saved. But others went to the other extreme and they were saying, listen, since our culture is so rooted in this type of immorality, we shouldn't have anything at all to do with it, not even in marriage. Therefore, all sex is bad. And Paul says, wait a minute. The, the sin of the first group and the, and the error of the first group is obvious. But you too, in this second group, you're wrong as well. Now, such extremes are, are common for those who are young in the faith. It's easy to go to extremes. It somehow seems more spiritual to do that rather than staying in the center of biblical tension and, and, and seeking to live according to God's word, not into, into legalistic thinking, which makes us think that we should deny more than what we've been called to. Paul calls the Corinthians and calls us to, to view intimacy, sexual intimacy in the context of the marriage, for what it is. It's a gift from God. It is a gift that is for our good. So so neither of these views honored God's design for marriage or the gift of sexual intimacy to married couples. And brothers and sisters, we must guard against going to such extremes in all that we do. God's grace does not free us to commit all the sin that we want, nor does God call us to a a legalism that, that rejects the good things that God has given us. Things that are for our good, and in this case, as we'll see, things that are for our protection. God's gift protects, verses 2 and 5. Paul continues, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come back together again 
so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I want to tell you up front that we're going to spend the bulk of our time here this morning because there is a view of, of, of sexuality that is revealed here that we must not only understand, we must affirm and embrace if we are to be faithful in our relationships with one another as husband and wives. But over the course of church history, there have been a, a number of interesting views of sexual intimacy in marriage. Some view it as being primarily for the purpose of procreation. You, you, you keep the human race going that way. Some view it as, as something that is simply to be endured for the fulfillment of their partners. Some view it as, as the supreme source of pleasure. Pleasure is the goal of it. And while there are elements of, of truth in each of these views, except for the endured, none of them go far enough in recognizing the blessing that sexual intimacy should be in marriage. A, a healthy marriage involves sexual intimacy that, that is at its basis a physical reflection of the spiritual and emotional intimacy that already exists between a husband and wife. Let me say that again. Sexual intimacy in a marriage should be the reflection of or the overflow, the result of a, a, a greater emotional and spiritual intimacy that already exists. It's, not, it's another expression of our oneness. Now, I, I, I'm going to try to touch on that a little more deeply in the next section, but I, I want to make that clear up front, even before we talk about the protective nature of sexual intimacy within the marriage. It, it, it has to be more than just protection, just like it is more than just procreation. It is an expression of a unity that is in existence and growing, an intimacy in every area of the marriage, not just physically. In verse 2, Paul writes that because the temptation to sexual morality is so strong, a husband must have his own wife, and a, must, a wife must have her own husband. The, the, the Greek word that's translated have means to hold on to or to possess. So, so this first aspect of protection within marriage is that it's clear that intimacy should only exist within the context of the marriage relationship between the husband having his wife, the wife, her husband, that commitment. In every wedding I've ever performed, I think I've quoted Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That sounds familiar, right? Now, I don't think I've ever included Verse 25 at weddings, but maybe I should start. Let me read this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now that may seem a little off for a wedding, but what, what's being described here? The condition of a relationship where a husband and wife can physically be in their most vulnerable form and there be no need for shame. Marriage protects because marriage takes something that can only be experienced rightly in the context of, of a marriage commitment and removes all shame. There's protection in that, brothers and sisters. God uh, the, these words were, were spoken at the, at the first ever wedding between Adam and Eve. And the protection is that it makes our relationship, or should make our relationship, absence of, absent of shame. When we satisfy ourselves with one another in marriage, the, the, the draw of immorality in the world is weakened in our lives. It, it doesn't go away. We still are surrounded by it. We still have sinful desires within us. But if that relationship is healthy and growing, then there is a weakening of the draw of the world. Brothers and sisters, God knows that our desire for sexual intimacy is, is powerful. It's a powerful influence in our lives. But you know what else? He created that within us. 
And in his love, he's given us the parameters within which we enjoy it to its fullness with his blessing and for his glory. The, the problem is the, is the ease with which sin perverts those desires and how easily we allow ourselves to settle for counterfeits. In verse 5, Paul gives a command. Do not deprive one another. The, the view among some in the church that sexual intimacy was unnecessary or unimportant had placed those marriages in great danger. Think about the temptation that, that some of those spouses may have felt at that time. Well, we've got some in the church that think we can live how we want. We have others, unfortunately, maybe, maybe this guy's spouse or this woman's spouse were in the camp that we need not be intimate at all. And what happens? They, they, they look over there at, at those who are abusing it in the, the opposite way. And, and, and perhaps that church member begins to look appealing to them. So, so these who were denying the gift of God's, uh, that God has given in, in marriage were probably tempted to look at those and be tempted to immorality with them. That, that, that happens often. Husbands and wives in Corinth were not protecting one another, but it opened the door for temptation to creep in. That Greek word translated deprive is a powerful one. Aposterte which means to defraud, to cheat, to rob, or to steal. It's also used to describe withholding something from someone that is owed to them, something that they need. When we deprive one another within our marriage relationships, quite honestly, brothers and sisters, we are stealing from our partners the intimacy, protection, and pleasure that God commands us to give them. Let that sink in. Yes, I said the word commands. Do not deprive one another is in what is known in, in grammar as in the imperative sense. It is a command. Let me stop you quickly but before you think that I've given you a weapon to use against your spouse for more intimacy or anything else for that matter. This idea of protection goes beyond simply physical satisfaction that we receive in intimacy. That's real, but I think as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has much more in view. There's also a protection for us that comes from our prioritizing our spouse's pleasure and fulfillment. Think about it. When we prioritize truly knowing our spouses, asking questions, what... Like, what do they enjoy? What, what, what are they insecure about? What, what are the ways that you admire them? How, how can you encourage their growth and fulfillment? Truly seeking to know one another creates an emotional intimacy in our relationship that leads to a greater fulfillment of our physical intimacy. Because, brothers and sisters, men, sexual intimacy is more than just a physical experience. To, to truly avoid depriving one another, we must prioritize the other areas of our marriage as well. So as Paul says, don't deprive one another, he's not giving husbands the right to say to their wives, hey, you're not supposed to deprive me. But he's giving them the tools with which to evaluate their own lives and saying, in what ways am I guarding against depriving my wife? There's a big difference there, right? And we need to get that because men and women throughout the course of church history have, have taken verses like that and, and, and made something that God has given as a right and an obligation in a church making, or in a marriage and making it a burden in one spouse's life because the focus is not on what should I be doing to serve my spouse, but why isn't my spouse serving me? So that's an important distinction that we make, brothers and sisters. Paul continues, verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
So Paul says, in essence, don't, don't deprive one another except when you agree to spend a season, a short one, devoted to prayer. But then be sure to re-engage with one another to avoid the temptation of the devil. This idea of devoting yourselves to prayer is similar to the concept of fasting. We know what fasting is, right? It's choosing to do without something necessary, usually food, in, in order to spend that time that you would normally be eating in order to draw near to God in prayer and time in His Word. Fasting serves as a, as a powerful reminder that we need God more than we need even our most basic physical needs. And Paul promotes this same idea with sexual intimacy. If you're going to stop for a season, do it for a purpose. Do it to pray. But then remove, resume your married responsibilities to one another. I would also add that such seasons of prayer should be entered into together. What, what a great opportunity to, to pray as husband and wife in, in time devoted together to pray for your children or to pray for trials that you may be facing or, or praying for lost friends and family. Pray together, pray often, pray fervently, but then resume your intimacy with one another. Paul also reminds us in verse 5 that we face a very real enemy when it comes to the purity and sanctity of our marriages. Not only is he real, Satan is the master of attacking when we are at our weakest. And Paul says, church, couples, husbands, wives, you must protect one another within your marriages. We, you, you cannot simply think of our own desires, or your own desires, but, but we must also think of how we can protect and serve our spouses, that they be less susceptible to Satan's lies and the temptation to sin. Friend, let me tell you, Christian friend, your, your spouse battles against lust. Your spouse probably battles the temptation to, 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 to be dissatisfied with your marriage. It's probably the temptation at times to bitterness or any other sin that might bring division in your relationship. These things are, are both the result of our personal sins and weakness, but they are also the tools in which our enemy uses to seek to destroy our marriages and to destroy our testimony in general. Brothers and sisters, in our battle against sin, in our battle against Satan, we need God's help, and by His design, we need one another as well, especially in marriage. Sexual desire, again, it's powerful, and it's good when it's fulfilled in marriage, but anywhere else, it is deadly. So we must protect one another in our marriages for the glory of God and for our growth as a church Sexual intimacy is God's gift for protection, and it's also God's gift to, to further our unity and our intimacy with one another as husbands and wives. Verses 3 and 4, God's gift unites. Paul writes, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, in these verses, Paul touches on that subject of unity and authority in sexual intimacy in the marriage. Now, I have to go quickly here, but I think this principle is a, is a pretty clear one if we think about it in terms of, of what we looked at from Genesis chapter 2, this idea of becoming one flesh. This describes the physical and spiritual union that must exist between a husband and wife. These verses describe the, a, a unity existing with a mutual submission and authority, particularly as it relates to sexual intimacy. These verses fall under Paul's command to not deprive one another in verse 2. In verse 3, we see that intimacy is both a gift and an obligation within marriage. And you may struggle over that word obligation, but it's really not a bad word. We, we, we have obligations all the time. We are obligated as the, as the body of Christ 
commanded by the Word of God to, to join corporately for worship on a regular basis. That, that's a good gift from God, but it's an obligation. Husbands, you are obligated to, to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. That's a, that's a command, but it's also a, a good thing that you get to do. Wives, you're called to respect your husband. Parents, you're, or children, you're called to, to, to submit to your parents' authority. These are obligations under God, but they are good for us. The same is true with intimacy within marriage. It's not something to be withheld, but it's something to be giving, given lovingly and wholeheartedly. Intimacy within the marriage is not a bargaining tool to be used by one spouse to, to get what he or she wants from the other, nor is it to be our main focus in life. It is an expression of that greater intimacy we share in Christ and in our marital covenant with one another. And verse 4 really is a beautiful description of the, the attitude we should have towards one another in marriage. And I want you to hear it in, in terms of what I described just a few moments ago about as we consider who we have, not in terms of what they should give us, but how we can better serve them. It says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is a picture of true intimacy within marriage. Understanding that one flesh means that we belong to one another physically really is a game changer if you think about it. Not just in how we respond to one another physically, but also in how we care for one another in other ways. As Christian, we understand that sexual sin is wrong, don't we? We, we know that exposing ourselves to pornography, whether it's written or visual, is wrong. We, we know that it's wrong to, to entertain sinful thoughts and fantasies. We know that infidel, infidelity is wrong. We, we know it in the depths of our souls. But there are still seasons when we are tempted, are we not, in one way or another. In, in chapter 6, Paul made it clear that the Corinthians should not engage in the immorality of the culture because they had been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. Therefore, they belong to God. Here in chapter 7, in these verses, we see that, that married couples belong to the Lord, but we also belong to one another as well. It's a whole other layer. We're, we're to devote ourselves to the things that honor God and, and the things which honor our spouses as well. Sexual intimacy is different from all other intimacy because it is only to be shared between a husband and wife. You have other close friends in your life, friends who keep you account accountable, friends whom you share your struggles with, that there's intimacy there. But that's not the same as the intimacy that exists between a husband and wife. There are things that, that are reserved for a husband and wife that should be never shared with anyone else. Things to do with our body, things to do with our minds. Things to do with our affections. The, the wife's uh, authority over her husband's body and the husband's authority over his wife's body is a reminder that when it comes to intimacy, our thoughts, our actions, our desires, all of who we are, are devoted to our spouses. There's no room for anyone else. I cannot make room in my heart, in my mind, or with my body to entertain lustful fantasies because when it comes to that part of me, those things belong to my wife. Let that sink in. It's not just your mind and your heart that's engaging in sin when we sin sexually. According to Paul, you're taking your spouse's heart and mind there as well. You're being unfaithful. Now as I think about it in those terms, that, that I'll, I'll speak to myself as I've wrestled with this passage. 
I don't think I've ever stopped to think that specifically about what it means to belong to my wife. And it's caused me to rethink a lot of things. What entertains? What do I delight in? What do I joke about? Are there things I'm seeing, things I'm saying that, 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 that would reveal that, that I don't belong to my wife? Well, if that's the case, they got to go. Brothers and sisters, I, I should not need to tell you how powerful of a drive sexuality can be in our lives. It, it's a powerful influence. We must have protection, and God has provided it. And we must learn to, to view that protection through the lens of Scripture, not what the world may say. I, I could go on, but time draws short. As I close, first a word to singles. Whether you are an adult or a teenager, it's important that you have a biblical view of sexual intimacy. It's a good thing, but it must be done God's way, in God's context, which is in marriage. Even if you have mistakes in your past, it falls upon you as a single person to, to pursue sexual purity until marriage. Do not give immorality an inch in your life because it will take a mile. So we must be on guard until that day God brings the right person into your life and then not until after you've committed to marriage. Make it with God's help your goal in life to remain pure. Do not compromise in this area. It will only bring regret. To the married among us, pray that God's word is shaping your understanding of, of, of what it means to be intimate in your marriage. Do not allow the culture's values to shape how you view sexual intimacy. It is a beautiful thing. It is a fire that, that, that will heat your marriage when you keep it in the virtual fireplace or the, or, the, or the figurative fireplace of your marriage. But if you take it out, it will burn your house down. Do it God's way. Guard one another. Care for one another. Understand that the battle that you are in is a spiritual battle. Wives, pray for your wives' purity. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands. Pursue purity above all else. We are blessed when we learn to celebrate sexual intimacy God's way. I'm going to close with the gospel for anyone here who may not believe. We live in a world where sex truly has become an idol. Christ died to redeem us. He died because of our propensity to pursue immorality. The ball games are coming on later. Gene mentioned that earlier. It's a big deal for people here in Pennsylvania for some reason. camera's going to cut to a lot of different views. You're going to have a lot of different commercials that come on. A lot of different images that, that are going to be flashed before your eyes. What steps are you going to take to protect yourself, to protect your spouse, and to protect your children who are watching with you? Is that momentary flash or, 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 or sight that you're going to see on the screen, is it worth the compromise that, that, that may in some way pervert your intimacy within your marriage? You've got to be on guard. 
Now, am I saying don't watch the game? No, but I'm saying watch it carefully. Watch it understanding that there is someone that is far greater, far more important than the gratification you're going to have from enjoying a ball game that you want to honor. Actually, there's more than just one. There's God, of course, who we want to honor with our hearts and minds. But there's also your spouse if you're married. If you're not married, there's your future spouse. If we take this word seriously, we must take our purity seriously as well. Christ died to redeem us from the curse that the sin of, of, of sexual morality, the, every sin brings upon us the judgment we deserve, death, hell, separation from God. But Christ died to redeem us. Christ died so that we would be reconciled to God. Christ died so that the Spirit of God could come and dwell within us. Christ died so that in our earthly relationships we could relate to one another in marriage and friendships and church and even our relationship with the outside world in ways that reflect Christ is Lord of our lives. If you do not believe, you, you, you are missing the point. The point of this life is not for you to get all you can get. If you continue to re reject Christ, that, that's, that's going to be your only joy. But understand that Jesus has provided a better way. He died to remove your guilt. He died to restore you to God. He died to, 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 to enable you to experience true, true joy in life and in the life to come. So do not let this day go by con continuing to believe uh, the lie that the devil has set before you that somehow in pursuing Christ you're going to have to give up anything that's actually worth keeping. Let us pray.